0: Hello
1: and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, which this week is a sort of review of the year and even the decade, actually, since we've come to the end of one, and also a preview of both England in South Africa and also a bit about Australia against New Zealand. In the second half, because... Very much, Christmas is the time when most sports books and, in fact, any books are bought. I thought we'd focus on the best cricket books of the year and interview one of the leading cricket writers, a guy who is a multi-award-winning author, Duncan Hamilton, to talk about his new book. So that's coming up in the second half. Uh, first, though, what's your sort of highlight of the year? Would you say what's your memorable moment? What one one moment, one incident yeah. of the year? I think you'd have to go to Headingley.
2: I know England won the World Cup this year and there was that dramatic finish and all sorts going on in the last hour or so. But I think Headingley, Ben Stokes reverse-sweeping Nathan Lyon for six into the West Stand and the noise that day, I think that will stay with me for a very very long time uh, incredible afternoons cricket England were down and somehow Ben Stokes revived them and, and kept the Ashes series alive. So although I think as an achievement winning the World Cup for England was sort of the highlight of the year just in terms of just one moment that moment when Ben Stokes reverse swept Nathan Lyon I think everyone just looked at each other and thought did he did he just do what I think he just did an astonishing
1: stroke. I suppose mine would be would have to be the World Cup final and, and actually Although that mad moment when Stokes dived in and the ball ricocheted off his back and went yeah. for four, you know that was bizarre, and it, it almost sort of underlined the fact that it was England were fated to win, and also actually Trent Bolt stepping on the rope as well. Yeah. But just that final moment when, with two runs to win, New Zealand skeltering for the line in in the personage of uh, Martin Guptill and and obviously just falling. A metre short, Jason Roy, who'd fumbled the ball earlier in the over, getting the throw mm. accurately to Joss Butler, who virtually destroyed the stumps. And then that image of the, the players all embracing. And actually, Ben Stokes polaxed on the ground in exhaustion. I think he slipped over, actually, in setting off to join the, the throng and, and actually fell to the ground. And you can see him just briefly in one of the camera pictures, completely prostrate on the ground, almost beyond exhaustion, really. Let's just recap that moment.
0: Here it is, folks. This is the moment. It's Archer to Guptill. Two to win. Guptill's going to push for two. They've got to go. It's got to has got to go to the keeper's end. Go on, go on. Yes! Yeah!
1: So that actually was recorded from the VT truck at the back of the the nursery end, which I was sat in with a load of technicians. And you can hear the excitement there in in their voices, as well as, of course, Ian Smith, who uh, has had a great year himself. Actually, Ian Smith commentated brilliantly on that World Cup final. and He's been in... Uh, vintage form during the series in New Zealand as well. Yeah, I'm not sure he was so
2: happy after the Perth Test match, though, where New Zealand absolutely crushed. And Australia just set them up so nicely for that. You could see it coming from a, a long way off. Pink ball Test match in Perth, bouncy pitch, hot conditions, complete contrast to conditions in Hamilton and indeed at the Bay Oval where they played the, the, the first Test match against England. Also, the, the jet lag factor as well, going from New Zealand all the way over to. Perth. People don't think of there being that much of jet lag, but there is a bit involved. Mm, there is, all, yeah. all sorts of factors. Australia just played a pink ball test match against Pakistan. They set them up nicely, as they often do. Actually, Australia, don't they? Nice itinerary to, to suit their own team. Go to normally go to Brisbane first for a first match of a, of a series, and but this time it was Perth, which was really tough for New Zealand, and they were crushed. Really, they were yeah. crushed
1: in that test match. I mean, actually, you're right about the, you know flying from Auckland to Perth. Is the equivalent of flying from London to the Middle East, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. Dubai or something exactly. like that. Yeah. And with with the similar kind of contrast yeah. as well. Yeah, it was
2: really it's really tough. Them pitch was bouncy. People talk about the, the new Perth Stadium. Is it going to be a bit like the Wacker? Actually, the Wacker's gone a bit tame or, or went a bit tame in, in in recent years. But they've certainly found some pace and bounce in that. Perth Stadium, and it's going to be tough for, for batsmen going there.
1: And I suppose uh, it it also, uh, in a way, uh, confirmed the, the the batsman of the year, although Steve Smith would would lay some claim to that, the batsman of the year in the twelve months has actually been Marlis Labuschagne, mm. who's scored more than a thousand Test runs. He scored another hundred in that Perth Test match. He's he's a bit of a uh, a, a kind of um, Smith clone mm. in a way, but. He, you, were, you were doing that test yeah. match, weren't you? I mean, it, it, was, it must have been another phenomenal performance by someone who actually is more interesting to watch than Smith, in a way.
2: Yeah, I, I thought actually he should have been manned the match. He scored over 190 runs in the match. Uh, Mitchell started at nine wickets, but I thought there was enough there for the bowlers. I know, I know Labuschagne got the runs in the first innings when the pitch was at its best. It became very cracked as the match went on. I just thought that Labuschagne's performance really set up Australia's victory. And when once they got four hundred plus in their first inning, that was it. The bowlers were going to get to work on that Perth surface. Start bowled well; he was a handful, but he was bowling on that second evening. He was bowling under the lights, perfect conditions with the pink ball to bowl under mm. the lights, mm. and he, he just
1: exploited it very well. So, but I thought Labuschagne was really the man that set up Australia's victory. And, of course, it's going to be tough for New Zealand in that that second Test match uh, starting on Boxing Day at the MCG. A lot of cricket going on, isn't there? We've Mm. had Pakistan-Sri Lanka, uh, Test cricket returning to Pakistan, a heavy defeat for Sri Lanka. And and an interesting uh, performance in that game, five wickets for Nazim Shah, Mm. 16 years old, the second youngest ever bowler to take five wickets in innings, and he is... Uh, absolutely phenomenal-looking ca- character. Pace, swing, lovely action, rhythm, aggression. He, he could be one to, to really look out for.
2: Yeah, and the, the top four in Pakistan's secondings, all making 100 as well in 550-plus for three declared. And the, other, the interesting aspect of that tour, of course, now, will be will sides feel compelled to go and play test cricket in Pakistan or will... Teams have cold feet. England are due to go there in in the not-too-distant future. What what do they do? Do they say no? Uh, Obviously, they'll look at the security side of it. Uh, Reg Dickerson, who does all the security for the England team, he'll go there and assess everything and and make a decision, and they basically go on, on Reg's say-so. If Reg's says it's fine to go, then England presumably will, will go there. Whether we'll see one or two players pull out, I don't know. If not, then it might be back in the UAE or another part of the world. But Pakistan, they seem absolutely convinced and confident that Test cricket should be played in, in Pakistan. Although Bangladesh have said we're happy to go there for T20s, but not for Test matches. So we'll wait and see on that one. But it's significant that Test cricket is is back in Pakistan.
1: As far as England are concerned, obviously they play their first Test in South Africa, starting also on Boxing Day at Centurion, a departure from the norm, because normally that Boxing Day Test in South Africa is at Durban, Kingsmead. And well, you, well, you talk about the Australians
2: uh, you know, having that first fixture in a in a favourable venue, because England have a good record in Durban. They've done well in Durban, so I don't know whether the South Africans have said, no, we're not going to let them have that advantage. We're going to play it on a, a bouncier track at altitude at Centurion and try and get at England in that first game. It,
1: it looks like it. And, and, you know, altitude is is a big thing in South Africa for for two reasons, actually. One, obviously the ball flies further, so Johannesburg, the Wanderers, the ball does fly for six more easily in one day internationals especially and actually having played uh, a season of uh, first class wicket in South Africa it does make a difference playing at altitude compared to playing at the coast you know you do feel short of breath playing in Joburg or or Centurion compared to down on the coast in Durban or or Cape Town so interesting to see how England deal with that and they've got the mm-hmm. health issues of their own well that's they?
2: it yeah are the are the players fit to come out and bowl well, and they might say they 're fit uh, Stuart broad and uh, and Jofra Archer in particular, those are the bowlers that England are desperate to have in that Test match, especially uh Geoffrey Archer, of course they will they 'll want to carry him around you know wherever they play because he's he 's such a threat and that he'll be he 's hoping, and England are hoping that he 'll make the Kookaburra ball do something in south Africa stuart broad says it's it 's a good place to bowl with the Kookaburra and that there is pace and bounce at St. Shure, and there is pace and bounce at the Wanderers. So, but, but are they going to be fit? Uh, it's been a t- tight turnaround for England. They had a really tough time of it in New Zealand. It was, you know, really hard work, I think mentally and physically. Uh, I was listening to Ashley Giles the other day talking about whether England have actually still have overcome the tough summer they've had. I know some of the players had a break and they didn't play in the T20 series, but whether they really have overcome that that the tough summer. And, you know, New Zealand, quick turnaround, off to South Africa, illness in the camp. South Africa now have, have, have reorganised themselves. they sort of got their house in order just in time. Graham Smith, interim director of cricket. Mark Boucher, new coach. Jacques Callis, batting consultant. Charles Langevelt, bowling consultant. They, they've they got an experienced squad as well. Uh, I don't think it'd be as straightforward for England as, as some people are suggesting. It might take them a bit of time to get in the series. we'll We'll know after centurion but england is. it seems to me england are not set up for a fall but it it will not be as straightforward
1: as many people are predicting and i'm very interested to see for all those people who poo poo the idea of coaches international coaches and the effect they have what effect three star players who've now been recruited into the Into the frame as coaching staff, or effectively, if Graham Smith is director of cricket, but will obviously have a a say in how the game is played, and Mark Boucher, as you say, and also Jack Callis. You know, how much influence can those guys actually have on the players? And maybe quite a bit because they picked some experienced players who I, I think experienced players have got more ability to listen to advice and try and put it into practice. Than a young player who's sort of trying trying to find his way, you often find with young players they say, "Oh look, you know, I've been bombarded with uh, with different uh, suggestions, and I don't really know which, who to listen to." Whereas I think when you when you've established your game a bit, like some of these players in in the squad have, then just little bits of advice from the likes of Callis it might just be a reassurance. It might just be looking out for a particular type of scoring shot on that surface. I don't know, but. I think they can, well, it'll be interesting to see yeah. if they have an influence. Yeah, I, I, was, I was actually fascinated
2: by the squad that South Africa have picked. And they've got the, some of the familiar names, you know, the likes of Rabada and Duplessis and Quintin de Kock and Dean Elgar, who's a fine opener. What they have done is they, they've, they've, ex- they've picked experienced batsmen and bowlers who've got good records in first-class cricket in South Africa, and they're, they're a proud sporting nation, South Africa. Everyone thought England were going to win the Rugby World Cup final, but South Africa stood up to them and, and bullied them and dominated them and, and beat them quite comfortably on the day. And I, I know England have got a good record in South Africa, and they the South African series, I think, are always really good. They're always really watchable. I'm really looking forward to it. I think England have got a chance. Of course they've got a chance. But I don't think this England side, is that good. They've got some very good players, and we've talked about it for a while, and if those very good players perform, then South Africa will be under pressure. But as an all-round team, they're they're a bit creaky and there are some cracks in that team. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was actually just looking at the records of a couple of players uh, of the year. Uh, You know, Rory Burns, who has definitely established himself as England's sort of number one opener, and how's he gone over the year? Well, his record is 11 tests... 731 runs, averaged 34.8. So that's actually a slightly better performance than his overall average, which is only 32. Not bad, actually. Mm. Uh, de- dealing with uh, obviously the Duke's ball for a lot of those test matches in England. So uh, I remember Alistair Cook, his last year of test cricket, only averaged about 28 or something. Mm. So he's a slight improvement on that, but still work to be done there. And to pick out, you know, England's. Player of the Year, Very, not much doubt about who that is, Ben Stokes. And, you know, fantastic record, actually. 30 matches in all formats, 719 runs, average 53. Mm. He's averaged 53 in, you know, a combination of Tests, One Dayers and T20. So he's had a fabulous year, capped by his elevation as BBC Sports Personality of the Year. But, as you say, you know, fragile top order. Joe Denley made 100 in that warm-up game. Mm. So did Ollie Pope. He's going to be one that, that, yeah. that, that's starting to emerge. That middle order looks fine. Again, it's still that top order you worry about.
2: Yeah, one thing England have done this year is they've tried to sort out a
1: structure to their team. We've talked about in the past
2: that the structure seems all wrong. You know, lots of all-rounders, no one at the top. They tried to address that, but the question is, have they been? Will they be able to do it successfully? It's all very well having the right structure, you know, a top order that's suited to Test match cricket. Uh, an all-rounder five batsmen a spinner and then you your, your pace bowlers but you still got to find that that all-round quality in a side jimmy Anderson coming back in into the side he, he bowled in the in the warm-up games he bowled very well in the in the second match very good figures got through 30 overs but you you, you don't quite know how that's going to work out on south african pitches a guy who's what 37 years of age a canny bowler uh, but are South Africa just going to be able to sit on him. It, it, it sort of depends
1: who's at, at the other end, really. If you've got Ar- yeah, it's a tantalising prospect. Yeah. Archer and Anderson, yeah. isn't it? If it is. both, yeah. obviously, if Archer's fit. Mm. But you know, it, it, it's Anderson hasn't had a great record in South Africa the, the previous series. Um, you know, it, it's going to be fascinating to see if he can still recapture that uh, that magic and, and that extra bit of zip, amazing performance over the decade. I said we were going to quickly pick out a couple of things from the decade and two players yeah. in the world undoubtedly stand out Jimmy Anderson 106 tests in the 2010 decade 430 test wickets at an average of 24.25 that's a phenomenal performance just in playing 100 tests in a decade yeah. i mean it's for, for a pace bowler for a pace bowler he's such a great bowler to
2: watch he's, it's it's fascinating to watch him he, He's a he's a craftsman, and it it will be sad when he's no longer bowling finger. I'm looking forward to watching him bowl again. Actually, see you know, whether whether he's still got it, whether he can mm. still cause problems. He's had what six months out of the game with that uh, calf injury. As you know, you've said it yourself. You know, as you get older into your thirties, it's not so easy. I remember you saying before that you, a, a ball that you bowled when you were 25, you thought you propelled it at the at the same speed as a. As a, a Say thirty three, did at twenty five, but twenty five is finding the outside edge or or whatever, or hurrying the batsman. At thirty three, it's disappearing over deep back with square leg for six.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, and it doesn't feel any different when mm. you're letting go of it. You feel it's still got that venom, but the batsman just seems to have yeah. a lot more time. So, yeah, well, let's hope Jimmy's um, sinewy muscles are, are able to have that state, same elasticity and take wickets. Of course, the batting star of the decade. Needs No Introduction, Virat Kohli, and I mean his The stats stats, are amazing, aren't they? These stats are remarkable. (laughs) So in all formats since 2010, 388 matches, 21,067 runs, average 57.71... In all formats. 57.71 average in all formats, Mm. and 70 hundreds. (laughs) All his hundreds, in fact, all his international hundreds have been made in this decade. Shouldn't be allowed, should it, really? <laughs> it is it's utterly And he made good. 80 again today. Utterly you know, greedy. One day international. Yeah, yeah but but insatiability. Yeah. And you, I, I think you're born with that. Mm. I don't think you can become that insatiable. You you just have it within you. And clearly Steve Smith has it as well. Steve Smith doesn't have that record yet because he he didn't really kind of... Get his act together until later in the decade, mm. but it seems to me. You talk about Smith. You talk about
2: Warner in Australia. You talk about Labuschagne emerging. They've got those fast bowlers as well. Just looking ahead, as we as we often do in cricket, those Ashes coming up in a what well, a couple of years' time. Australia looking <sighs> very strong, formidable, aren't they? Really. I mean, what, what I think what England were hoping is you look at that batting lineup. And you think, oh, well, as long as their batting is thin, there's an opportunity. There's only, it's only Smith, but Warner, Renaissance, that's not a great surprise, actually, in Australian conditions. Although two years' time, he'll be back 36. But Labochane, he looks the real deal. Mm. They've got Smith as well. And then if you can play around those three batsmen, there's enough strength in that Australian batting now to... You know, to to get big enough totals, and then they've got the the pace bowlers. If they can keep them fit, because Josh Hazelwood broke down in the in the first Test match, they they do have other options. That's the thing, isn't it? Can they keep the pace bowlers fit? But there there there's a lot a lot of pace bowling talent generally in in Australian cricket. So even if the big guys are injured, there are still some promising bowlers that can come in behind them.
1: So we think Australia are going to beat New Zealand in that series. Mm. What about a prediction for England South Africa then? Four Tests. Mm. I I I I'm siding with you actually. Are I you? think I think South Africa just might have, you know, they haven't had a good year generally. I don't think they've won a test match since about January. They well, lost, they, lo- they lost twice. They lost twice. To Shranka, didn't they? Yeah, lost, they got thrashed home. in
2: India, but yeah. then ev- ev- everyone's going to get thrashed in India at the moment. I think England will go to India next summer, next winter, and, and be well beaten. They'll, they'll yeah. find it really tough as they did last time. So people saying, oh, that South African side, they went to India, they were steamrolled. Uh, you know, they're, they're rubbish well, let's see England go there yeah. and, and do better
1: than that. I, I'm worried about England's uh, bowling, actually, in South Africa, because I think Archer may not be fit, uh, fully fit for the first test, whether he plays or not. Uh, and I don't know whether England still got that potency, enough of it, mm. to really take wickets in South African conditions against some quite tough competitors like Dean Elger, for instance, mm-hmm. obviously Faf du Plessis. There'll be something really gritty and determined about that South African team, England are going to have trouble, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard, serious to predict, but what I don't see is England winning 3-0 or something like that, which I think there was a feeling that, oh yeah, England would go there and th- th- they'll be too good for South Africa. I don't I don't see it as, as clearly as that. Okay, that they might happen, but to me it seems a, a, a much more unpredictable series, a hard fault, like some fascinating cricket. I always think, as I say, I always think there's England South Africa series, especially in South Africa, are really really watchable. The, the weather's good, it's warm, the pitches are, are good, and they reward good pace bowling. But they also help the batsmen as well. You can you can get in and and score big runs. So it, it'll be a a test. Ring. I think it's a question of whether the their their big players, you know, Root and Stokes and and Archer and and Anderson, are able to have a significant effect on the series.
1: It's a great opportunity for, for the uh, armchair watcher, anyway, isn't it, uh, over the holiday period? You've got England, South Africa during the day, and then a couple of hours off, and yeah. then you can watch Australia, New Zealand. Fantastic. Right, so have you finished your Christmas shopping? I have. Have you bought any books for anybody? I don't think I have. It's really sad. Not, not because I... Not I, even a private eye annual or, you know...
2: <laughs> not because I'm not viz, obsessed with books. viz annual, 2019. I buy lots of books for myself, but other people don't seem that keen on reading, reading them. Yeah, as much as I'm keen on, on reading myself.
1: Well, there is obviously a, a big surge of book buying at this time of year. It's the generally the peak of the book buying season. And uh, I thought we'd sort of just focus on cricket books a bit because the the poor old impecunious authors don't get a huge amount of plugging cricket authors i mean and uh, there's one guy who's particularly noticeable at the moment duncan hamilton who's just written the great romantic cricket and the golden age of neville Cardus," the famous writer in the early part of the 20th century And he's uh, got quite a a track record, actually, Duncan Hamilton, in in terms of writing biographies of famous sporting personalities. So, actually, he won an award with his book about Brian Clough. He also won an award with his book about Harold Larwood as well. Have you got a favourite cricket book? Go on. Go on, plug mine. Go on.
2: All right, then. I did, oh, I did, I did, I did. Well, I will just twist my arm behind. Me, but I, I did enjoy your book a lot, a lot of hard yakka. Because I, what I liked about it, and I think this all good sports books sort of take you inside the dressing room, don't they? they? They they give you that sense of of what it's like to be a, a fly on the wall or even a, a player inside that dressing room. So yeah, I did, I did enjoy your book, yours, even though it pains me to say, it. a lot of hard yakka. Another cricket book that I liked. Uh, Art of Captaincy by Mike Brealey. I st- I st- that story he told about putting the helmet at midwicket it just—it's always stayed with me. The idea to to get the batsman to play across a a, a spinner and trying to get him to work it and and, and make a mistake. Of course, that's been outlawed now. They—they've they've changed the laws, haven't they? So, so, so the
1: idea was you get five runs if you if you can to hit, hit it the ball yeah. against the yeah. helmet. So there's that, that temptation, yeah.
2: yeah, to hit the helmet. Yeah uh, about think he might might play across a, a straight ball and miss it and, and get a wicket. I think he was desperate for wickets. So, so though yeah, those two cricket books, I really I really liked um Vic Marx's book this year. Uh, I know I'm biased. I, I thing it, 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 it he wrote about times in my sort of childhood uh, or not childhood in my sort of teenage years and into my 20s I remember so clearly down in the West Country's time at at Somerset, and obviously i have travelling around the world with him over the over many years. Subsequently, so I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, Sports books generally, yeah. you like the kind of dressing room tales, don't you? Yeah, they? I think you like you want that you want that insight. I mean, you don't like biographies or autobiographies where they say oh yeah I was disappointed with that shot you want you want the stories don't you you want to you want to know what's going on emotion. behind the scenes yeah you want and and the the feel of it and the the behind the scenes stories i mean I, for that reason i think of three sports books three football books actually the glory game by hunter davis about the inside the tottenham dressing room um 1970s tottenham yeah only a game aim and dumpy aim and dumpy yeah, brilliant yeah and the, the Miracle of Castel di, di Sangri, which is a book about Italian lower league football where the writer lived and breathed the whole season with them. Mm. Um, and, and that's a fascinating sports book as well. I think what they all have in common is just that feeling of being behind the scenes of th- this is what it's like, or at least it gives you a flavour of, of what it's like to be right in the, at the heart of that team or dressing room or even the boardroom.
1: The, the, those sort of books allow you to, to smell the dressing room, don't yeah. they? So whether it's Deep Heat or some other product or, the, <laughs> I don't know, the... art uh, the well, bod- it's hair gel these days, isn't it? <laughs> probably is, yeah, exactly. Another one I particularly liked and really influenced me, I, I read Hunter Davis's uh, Glory Game and also even Dumphy only a game, mm. there was a wonderful accounts of football in the 1970s, uh, was Fever Pitch, obviously, Nick yeah. Hornby, which was different because, obviously, it was more about his relationship with his father and his passion for Arsenal. So it was much more of an outsider's view, but still compelling to read. And that's what you want, is emotion. Is yeah. you, you want to find out what people were really feeling in those situations. I, I was very influenced by Fever Pitch, actually by another book, which was about football, um, Left Foot Forward, Gary Nelson, which I think was about either Millwall or Charlton. I forget which club now and uh, generally those books just give you a deeper sense of actually being there and i i've found them really compelling and i also um because i'm a sort of
2: batting geek and i if someone would want to bowl at me all day i would bat all day even now and uh, people who know me know my desert island disc sort of luxury item would be a, a cricket net and a, and a bowling machine and batting equipment so I could just bat all day in, in the sunshine. Yeah. So I actually I did enjoy your book on batting and Steve James wrote a book on batting at the same time and I,
1: I enjoyed them both as well. Well, that's high praise. Um, this year, the, the ones we picked out in the Cricketer magazine uh, particularly, I, I thought Robin Smith's The Judge was quite a, a poignant book about his rise into the game and then his fall into depression and problems with alcohol and so on. Very heartfelt book. The others we could pick out as well include the one you mentioned there, Vic Marks' original spin, which is very much uh, an account of his own uh, life in the game. The award-winning book by the Australian writer Jeff Lemon, Steve Smith's Men, looking at the fallout from that famous sandpaper gate scandal in Cape Town. is definitely worth the read. And we should also pick out Duncan Hamilton's The Great Romantic, as I mentioned before, all about the cricket writer Neville Cardus. And I thought it would be interesting to, to talk to Duncan about his writing methods and how he picks his subjects. So that was my first question.
0: A few years ago, what I wanted to do was to write a book about the last cricket summer before the Great War. And so I went back and I looked at all the papers from 1914 and all the match reports were so poor. I mean, there was no description at all in there of the way a ground looked, or what the weather was really like, or um, or basically, you know, the the uh, way that a kind of batsman either scored his runs or a or a, a bowler took his wickets. And it wasn't really then until I looked again at nineteen nineteen. And um, Cardis's, um match reports during that summer were just so different from everybody else's. And he just completely changed the way that everybody wrote about sport. It wasn't only about cricket. Um, soon, within about five or six years, everybody wanted their own Neville Cardis, and uh, they were desperate to go and find somebody like that. And he lived such a complicated life, um, and he just seemed to me to be a, one of those figures who no one had actually actually got to the bottom of. And one of the rules I have if I'm picking somebody to write a biography of is simply this. Where am I going to start and where am I going to end? But most significantly of all, what what is the middle chapter? Because... Lots of biographies are written about people, and everybody will have a beginning and and an end, but not everyone has a kind of satisfying middle period to their life, which would make fascinating reading. The real fascinating middle period of his life was that it changed when he went on Gubby Allen's tour uh, in thirty six seven, and uh, he kind of always wanted to go and see Sydney, and. Um, He was at that period of his life where he'd been covering cricket for almost 20 years. He was in a marriage which was peculiar to say the least. And he didn't want to leave his girlfriend, despite the fact that the kind of sexual bit of their relationship was long over. Um, but he really had to go in 36-7. And, of course, when he, um, when he actually went, I mean, he found himself fated. I mean, it was like sort of uh, Dickens turning up in their, uh, New uh, York. Um, I, mean, I mean, he overworked himself. Um, but he just had a thoroughly fantastic time then of course when he came back he couldn't really get back into the swing of covering ordinary championship matches and kind of tests here and then his girlfriend died and she died very suddenly and it just changed his entire outlook on life and he became very gloomy everything led up to that point and then everything afterwards led away
1: from it Going back to the start of his uh, writing career, it's interesting that you choose 1919, which, of course, is 100 years ago. And I, I found, it, even on page one, quite a, an interesting kind of comment about the state of the game, because you say here gloomy about the game's ability to grasp public affection. This is the first season after the, the First World War. The MCC had debated whether to increase an over from six balls to seven, enlarge the stumps... ..and shrink the size of a bat. Even the possibility of banning left-handed batsmen was mooted and then dismissed. Uh, It sort of shows, in a way, that cricket is always trying to evolve to attract the public, even 100 years ago.
0: Yes, and and, um, basically the kind of debate that they were having in 1919 was exactly the same debate that they were having in 1939. Um, just before, um, just before the Second World World uh, War, um, and there was this constant thing with um, Cardus that he was, uh, that he was always kind of writing about cricket then being a, a little bit slow at uh, times, whereas actually people were uh, bowling about 140 hours a day, <laughs> <laughs> and there were colossal kind of runs being scored. Certainly, um, certainly towards the kind of back end of the 30s. Uh, and, and, of course, that was on, on their uh, of pitches. But, yes, I mean, it does absolutely underline the sheer fact that kind of cricket is always changing, always e- e- uh, evolving, and uh, that they're always looking for ways to get new uh, people through the uh, gates.
1: It <laughs> says something about the game, isn't it? That we have to keep trying to persuade people to, to follow it. You mentioned uh, actually, uh, fairly early on, that he was quite influenced by Charles Dickens, <laughs> in that he found uh, ways of describing characters which really painted a, a rich picture, and, and I guess he loved characters more than anything else.
0: Yes, I mean, if you go through his much reports as I did, Simon, you, um, the number of times Dickens crops up or the number of times a character from Dickens crops up and he will say, oh, he uh, reminds me of so-and-so from such-and-such-and-all. And And I think that he kind of looked at it as being a kind of theatre, really. And he wanted to pretend that all the cricketers were actually actors and the pitch was the stage. And um, from uh, that, that, uh, that is kind of basically how he tackled every single game, and he would look at somebody and think, oh, yeah, he will make a very good subject. And um, there are times, there are match reports, where um, you know he will just concentrate on one person.
1: I love the... Uh, there's a couple of quotes here you you, you mentioned. Um, Headley Verity, a bowler as secret and self-contained as an oyster, and a description of a, a Walter Hammond cut shot as a tower hill stroke you could almost see the axe and the block. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. lots of sort of different metaphors and things which uh, just enriched it generally.
0: Well, I think the thing is that he uh, that he was very well read and so he would read anything and he would read... I mean, he. I don't think he actually read very much cricket. I think he normally read novels um, or he would read philosophy or he'd read travel books and things like that. And so... Um, he kind of brought all that knowledge with him. And one of the other things that I always find fascinating is that he seldom sat in the uh, press box. He didn't particularly like sitting in press boxes and he would literally pick, I mean, he had a favorite spot uh, uh, virtually every ground that he went to and, that's where he would sit. Because John Arlott said, he was the father of literate sports writing and and if you were to draw a family tree of sports writers, he would be right at the top. And I think that everybody has been influenced, certainly if they cover cricket, has been influenced by Cardis in some kind of way. Even if you don't want to copy him, then, then you're still thinking of him.
1: Do you think, though, just playing devil's advocate, that at times... Perhaps he left uh, a legacy uh, of cricket being a bit of an elite sport. We still struggle at times to convince people that cricket isn't a sort of you know, upper class sport played by elite uh, from the establishment, if you like.
0: I think that's a fair point because, um, as you know, Cardis came from very impoverished um, circumstances and he... Made sure that he uh, that he left no kind of trace of that background on him. I mean, he used it obviously when he came to write his write his life story, um, and it was a fantastic bit of sort of grist to the mill, really. But generally speaking, um, he did become a very kind of um, higher kind of echelon style writer, and so um, he didn't really have a great rapport with the common man, I don't think, despite despite the fact he was one himself.
1: As far as your writing techniques are concerned, uh, I mean, you've written a number of very successful biographies. Uh, this one, uh, I notice at the back, uh, in the references section, there's an exhaustive list of books that you've consulted. How long does it take to write at one of your books and what what is your kind of daily process, what's your daily routine?
0: Um, my daily routine is to get up as early as I can, and usually I just start working. I don't even get—I mean, I don't shave or wash. I just go and start work. And um, when I first came to live here, um, I would suddenly discover it was eleven thirty in the morning, and the doorbell was ringing, and it was the postman. And I would go down. Looking as if I just sort of climbed climbed out of bed, and for a while he he thought I was the laziest person in there, uh, Yorkshire. Um, but, I'd, uh, but I'd actually been up since six uh, six uh, thirty, um, and he finally cottoned on. Um, so the actual process is to try and do, if I can, anywhere between five hundred to a thousand words a day, and sometimes. You can only write four hundred and fifty, and other days you can write fifteen hundred. Um, and I tend to think that once you've done the research, I mean, cardus took six months to write, but the research started in twenty twelve because twenty twelve or twenty eleven, simply because there was so much to read. I mean, you, I mean, he wrote millions and millions of words, and you've got to turn every page because you never know what you might find on the next page.
1: What what do you think? Um, what do you think Neville Cardus would would, make, would have made of the hundred?
0: Oh, I don't think he would have thought very much about twenty twenty. I think he would have found a way to write about it because writers always do. But I don't think he would have particularly liked it because he liked to watch. You know, I mean, he kind of liked a game to build slowly to a kind of climax, really. And I think he probably wouldn't have liked the sameness of it.
1: So the 100 is coming to a ground near you very shortly. Even Uh, if you don't want it to, it is coming. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, certainly lots of people don't want it. I I did a uh, lunch at the Sheffield Cricket Lover Society Mm. last week, at at which was not only Michael Vaughan's father, but also Joe Root's grandfather, Mm. Don, and there was very little enthusiasm for the 100 amongst uh, that assembled crowd. But I did try to convince them it's important for the game. And it is a bat and a ball and a pitch of 22 yards still. It is still cricket. Um just the the commitment that that Duncan Hamilton has shown to to, to writing really impresses me. Actually, because you know he's saying getting up at six thirty in the morning and writing until lunchtime, mm. looking to try and write a thousand words. And I don't know how often he suffers from writer's block, but but I do, and it's you know it's it's, it's terrible. It's like sort of constipation. You don't know how to to cure it really. Um I, I go if I suffer from it, I, I go to the gym. It doesn't necessarily help, but. It sort of takes me away from from doing something a sedentary life, but um, great to to hear Duncan still having tremendous success with his books and the great romantic. I, lo- I mean, I love the, some of the little stories in it. There's one where uh, he he tells the story of um, Neville Cardus um, putting semicolons in his prose, and some sub editor saying, uh, talking about the print work, saying we don't have. Semicolons here, so Carlos actually goes and find, drives somewhere, and actually goes and finds the block with semicolon on it to put it into his into his prose. I must just pick
2: up on one thing you referred to in the interval: banning left handedness in cricket. Well, they were talking about banning left
1: handers in cricket in, in, in nineteen nineteen. Well, actually, left handed totally discriminatory. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> left handers were almost regarded as a sort of criminals in society. Actually, it was regarded as something you know a bit sort of weird. And there weren't many left-handed writers in, you know, 200 years ago. I, I thought it was interesting to, to hear Neville Carter's how he would have approached the 100. And I particularly like uh, a cartoon on the cover of the Christmas issue of The Cricketer magazine, which don't forget you can get a special deal on if you go to thecricketer.com forward slash Christmas, you get a £20 John Lewis voucher or Alistair Cook's autobiography. We didn't mention that in our roundup of books of the year, but it's good. Um, I just like this little cartoon here by Newman, the famous Sunday Times cartoonist, and it's a picture of an ECB official, and he's holding the manifesto of the 100, and he's saying, forget the 12 days of Christmas, the punters want it reduced to three hours. (laughs) We shall see. We're going to find out in 2020,
2: the 100 in... They've got to sell it, haven't they? They've got to sell it. They've they've done the deal. We've had the debate. It's now about... We've had the selection process. It's a question now of who's going to come and watch and how many are going to come and watch.
1: Well, that's it, I think, for today. Uh, Certainly looking back on the year, 2019 was a momentous year for English cricket, winning the World Cup for the first time and getting a BBC Sports Personality of the Year in Ben Stokes as well. So a tremendous year for English cricket. Let's hope... 2020 is as good, and we'd like to both wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: This is the story of the one.